This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by Inside Tracker, and what makes me smile is before I even started my podcast seven years ago, when listening to other wellness conversations, Inside Tracker was always the company they recommended for comprehensive blood work. Well, now in 2024, they have begun to offer a brand new first responder panel, which will cover nine biomarkers hitting several of the pillars of health that affect us in uniform. Stress, heart health, metabolism, and gut health. Now, after a very simple intake form, a blood drawer, you will get the results sent to your computer, smartwatch, phone, not only detailing where you are on the scale from poor to optimized, but also tips on how you can improve each of these markers. Now, this panel is usually $310, but they are also offering first responders 30% off any of their blood panels. So that brings this specific panel down to only $217. Now, I myself went through their ultimate, which is their comprehensive blood work, which also includes micronutrients, hormones, and other areas of overall health. And I have to say, I was absolutely amazed at firstly, how easy it was, but secondly, the comprehensive information I got and the actionable information on how to improve each of my own biomarkers. Now, as with all my sponsors, if you want to hear more about Inside Tracker. You can hear my conversation with senior sales executive Jonathan Levitt on episode 887 of the Behind the Shield podcast. So to sign up or simply learn more, go to insidetracker.com. And for the first responder panel, the easiest way is to Google Inside Tracker first responder panel. This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear, to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. 
outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show firefighter, dispatcher, fire chief, city manager, and member of the All-American leadership team, Jim Lydon. Now, as you can hear, Jim has an incredibly storied career, not only in the different ranks of the fire service, but also overcoming an issue with his vision, his own powerful mental health story, and of course, he extrapolates many areas of leadership through his career and the work he does with All-American Leadership. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 900 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Jim Lydon. Enjoy. Well, Jim, I want to start by saying firstly, thank you to Rick Rochelle for connecting us. Um, you know, we had another great second conversation and obviously I had Rob Nielsen on as well from All American Leadership. Um, but uh, secondly, I want to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you. Great to be here. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? Uh, I am in my house in lovely downtown San Diego, California. Beautiful. So you're morning. Yes, morning here. All right. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning, kind of your origin story. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. So I was born in Northern California. I grew up in uh, the city of Santa Fel, which is just a little bit north of the Golden Gate Bridge. And I was the youngest of five children. We had a family that, that I'll say was sort of 
separated into two groups. I had three older siblings that are 10 to 13 or so years older than me. And then I had a brother that was four years older than me. And we, so he and I, I don't remember the other three really living in the house type of thing, right? It was, it was mostly what I have recollection of is my brother and myself and that type of thing. Uh, my parents were, I'll say very service oriented, community based. Uh, my father was a orthotics and prosthetics maker. Um, had his own business for many years. So he was, you know, he was about helping people and giving, you know, giving help to people who were disabled or whatever. So I think I, I kind of got that service to others type of thing from him. My mother was, uh, you know, she was in sales at department store and then she went in the insurance industry. Then she became more of a stay at home mom when I was in my teens, probably. But she became very active in the community with the senior citizens group and that type of thing, leading tours and helping them and that they were big in the neighborhood car club. You know, they were always stepping up to take on positions on the board or or those types of things. So very much about a service oriented type of a situation. My childhood, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood that we had a park, large park directly across the street from our front door. And so, you know, we were in the park all day and we had lots of kids in the neighborhood. We played football on the grass there, basketball, baseball, whatever, Uh, you know, kind of a cool thing back then. And, you know, this, I guess the late 60s and early 70s was at the park. There was actually staff there during the week uh, in the summertime that ran recreation programs, Um, you know, ran games, organized trips, et cetera. So. You know, just something you don't see necessarily at the neighborhood park anymore today. And uh, so that was kind of the family dynamic and the, where I grew up and that type of thing. Well, firstly, with the prosthetics, um, sadly, we've seen, you know, obviously a, a complete paradigm shift when it comes to amputees, whether traumatic or congenital, and, and the options are available for, to them now and the incredible, you know, just just the the ability the um athleticism all these things that we're seeing from the adaptive community that sadly came out of you know the afghan and um iraq wars have you had any conversations or did you have any conversations with your father about the kind of metamorphosis of where we are now in the in the profession that he spent a whole lifetime doing well my my father passed away in about 96 i think it was so long before that um but I can tell you, I can remember sitting at the kitchen table, you know, this was probably was mid seventies ish, something like that. And I can remember my father sitting there with a hand that he was placing electrodes on his arm at the dinner table and trying to make that hand work, um, you know, to pick up a glass or to pick up the fork, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, they were definitely, engaged in that type of activity uh, throughout that time. My oldest brother uh, went into that business, um, ran his own business for a number of years, uh, retired a a few years ago. um, And so he's probably seen some more of that more adaptive type of stuff nowadays that we see. 
yeah no it's it's amazing i mean you know again out of tragedy comes you know some beautiful things you know as a as a positive element of a you know, negative thing which was war but uh you know seeing just the videos of the crossfit athletes and you know the the spartan races all the way through to you know just just as you said the the robotic limbs now that are able to do so much um and even just you know other stuff you know the electric stimulation that helps people with parkinson's and you know some of the brain therapies that they're doing now it's it's when you and i were young we're not too far apart i think you know the special needs adaptive communities were kind of like oh you know well it's sad it is what it is and now i mean i just posted today a, a bodybuilder with down syndrome an amazing amazing man in canada um but then uh you know the um the prosthesis it was just you know wooden arms and wooden legs back then and now you know you're seeing these just uber athletes crushing it you know like one of them is on the show mark ormrod triple amputee after an ied in uh, i think it was afghanistan and he does jujitsu he's he's been in the um, invictus games i mean absolutely incredible so it is a beautiful thing to see that industry specifically makes such a huge difference in some of these men and women's lives yeah i mean it 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 truly was. And even back then, I mean, I can remember, you know, the success story, shall we say, you know, that I, I would hear about from my father, you know, talking about people that he had worked with or that type of thing. Well, you mentioned as well about the people working in the parks. And that reminds me of conversations I've had on the show. And and I think it was people that were from overseas that was kind of their observation and it was profound. When I grew up, it kind of was, you know, the, the dynamic that you're talking about. Um maybe you know not someone in a park specifically but we had these community leisure centers and they were you know the cost was minimal to go but there was internal um you know indoor football badminton volleyball all the sports inside there was the football pitches outside there was a pool there was a weight room um and you didn't have to have very much money at all to access that and i'm sure they probably had programs even if you were struggling that would allow you to but when you look at modern um a lot of recreation here in america you know you want to play on a court or a pitch you have to pay you know there's, there's a large fee and you got to get a whole bunch of people together which has become a barrier to entry our, our fields are gorgeous but a lot of people just can't afford to use them right yeah no it, it was it, like i said it was great right because it was every summer and you know the, the generally speaking the the people that were working there were older teenagers that, you know, were working for the recreation department and, you know, they allowed the kids to come together and, you know, be engaged and have that sort of community sense and things like that, that you just don't see today, unless you're, unless you're paying to go to the gymnastics facility or the, you know, wherever. Yeah, exactly. Now, what about sports and, and athletics? What were you doing when you were in school age? Uh, school age, you know, I played uh, youth football, uh, American football. Uh, I wasn't in a chasing that little round ball yet. That, that wasn't something that was a big deal here then. <laughs> and uh, um, a little bit of basketball, uh, baseball, that type of stuff, pretty much through until I went to high school. Uh, you know, high school, I uh, I had a different focus. And, uh, and so, so it was basically those those components were were what I played routinely as, you know, up till what, 13, 14 years old, something like that. Now, I know you went to the fire service early, but prior to that, was that what you were dreaming of becoming or was there something else in your mind? 
Um, I would say that, I mean, I didn't, obviously I didn't have, you know, like father wasn't a firefighter, you know, that type of thing. I wasn't, I wasn't really exposed to that lifestyle at home. Uh, I had a couple of friends that, uh, whose, uh, fathers were firefighters locally in town. Um, so I saw them never really, I'll say dreamed about it, but, but I talked about the park, right. Um, and it was, it was one of the, uh, part-time summertime gardeners, landscape maintenance people that worked in the park, uh, his father was the fire marshal for the local fire department. And he's the one, uh, he, he was an, as a teenager was an explorer scout as well in the fire department. He's the one that sort of like introduced that concept to me. And then I asked around a little bit more, you know, of some of these, uh, fathers of some of my friends and things like that and kind of got introduced to it that way. When I have conversations about diversity on here in the fire service, it just over and over again, the the answer seems to be mentorship. And I there's an amazing program here between Marion County and Ocala. Ocala was the ones that started it. A friend of mine named Chris Hickman. Um, and they removed all the barrier to entry because absolutely departments, especially historically, you know, were whether it was deliberate or just by geography were excluding a lot of, you know, candidates, some of which were, it was a gender or a race, for example. But what they've done is they've gone out into these communities and they've put their, their mentorship programs at a central fire station. So all these kids have to do is, is get there. There's free training, there's scholarships to fire academies. There's, there's definitely departments on the other end screaming for, for good candidates. Um, and so I'm, I'm absolutely, you know, it's a huge, huge element, I think, is the mentorship part, whether you're in uniform, whether you're mentoring, as, as we said earlier, as a, as a recreational, you know, sports coach, whatever it is, to being part of the solution rather than pointing at, you know, fire administration or, or government to fix your problems for you. What was your ex uh, experience as a young boy then in the mentorship program that you found yourself in? So... Uh, to kind of circle, just to put it in perspective on age, I, I joined that program when I was 14. And so, you know, basically 14 years old, uh, went through some training that they required initially, you know, it was all internal stuff, you know, basically how to be safe, but eventually just ended up at the firehouse. Uh, and so I got to see, I think from, a variety of perspectives because I, I hung around with different crews and different stations and things like that. So I got to see all kinds of different approaches to leadership within a small unit. I got to see uh, a lot of attitude uh, towards the fire service, whether it was good or bad. Um, but ultimately, I had a few people who uh, I'll say took me under their wing and taught me from their perspective what was important in the fire service. Things like, um, you know, control what you can control. You, you know, don't worry about uh, what they're doing uptown. You know, we can only control what we're doing here in the fire station, you know, that type of thing. Um, learned a lot about teamwork at that point. And, you know, camaraderie, 
all of those elements that I think are you know key components to the profession. Uh, at the same time, I was exposed to poor leadership, or you know, definitely saw definitely saw the difference between those that were engaged and those that were occupying a seat, for lack of a better term. Interesting. So how long did you remain in that program? So uh, I was very active in that program for two years. And, and by active, I mean that as soon as summer hit, uh, because I had, you know, I had this one particular uh, fire captain who, who took me under his wing. Um, I rode along 24 hours a day, every day that that ship was on duty while I wasn't in school. Um, and then when I was in school, I was there pretty much every Saturday at the fire station for the 24 hour shift with which whatever crew was on duty. And so, you know, got, I got to do a lot of stuff. I mean, they, they allowed me to do things as a fire explorer that they probably shouldn't have. Um, right. But, but, uh, certainly wouldn't do it today. I don't think, but things were definitely different. I mean, I was, you know, actively on the fire line at vegetation fires. Um, you know, if it was an exterior operation at a structure fire, we were allowed to participate in the operation type of thing. You know, we, our only limitation was you can't go inside a burning building. Um, so, so definitely got a lot of experience and exposure to things at the same time. Um, you know, and this is something I didn't realize at the time, obviously. And, and I've realized it now looking back is that's when trauma started you know because and i and i've spoken recently about this at a, a, you know, to another group i think we need to be more cognizant when we're mentoring or having these young teenagers coming into our profession as to what we expose them to um, so you know i went on every call with them right and went inside with them and you know saw the suicide attempt or successful suicide or the burn victim at a fire, you know, things like that, that, that maybe most 14 to 16 year olds aren't ready to process. And, and we probably need to address that when we're looking at these programs. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I just had a, a guest on Bruce Shooter um, and he it was interesting. There was volunteer fire service where he grew up, but there was also volunteer rescue. So they were separate. So he was actually doing the EMS. So arguably probably running on more of the macabre than, than the fireside. But when you hear the world of neuroscience now talking about, you know, when your brain matures, especially in, in the, the cannabis conversation seems to come up for some reason. If my memory serves me right, it's, it's mid-20s when our brain has finally evolved. So then you think that you're exposing a 14-year-old, 15-year-old to the levels of trauma that we see in our career. I agree 100%. How can they be part of the scene but in more of a support role so we're shielding them? Because... When I was a young firefighter, um, we had a, a horrendous call where um, two people were killed. One was a, a man in the front, and then a, a three-year-old in the back was decapitated. And my captain and engineer actually ordered the two firefighters, myself and my partner, to stay at the station. We got called back to actually you know, extricate the body for the coroner. 
And his thing was, you know, you're going to see enough stuff in your life. You don't need to add this to the to the call. And I thought that was probably some of the best leadership I've ever seen in my entire career. But it was simply that, like, it doesn't take four people to remove this child. They were, you know, literally a handful of months from retiring themselves. So that was uh, a calculated decision. But this is, you know, these are two two men that were in their 20s by this point, not a 14-year-old. Right. So then, then kind of back to your, your question, you know, how long did I do it? I pretty much did that for two years. And, and then, unbelievably, at the age of 16, I was hired by the fire department in a position they called fire cadet. That was the fancy term for it. We were technically dispatchers. And uh, we worked on the fire department work schedule. So every other day, um, you know, for three, three shifts. And then we had a four day break and, uh, we had a, we had a dispatcher that worked Monday through Friday, eight to five. And then we came in at five o'clock at night on our shift schedule. And if our shift day was on a Saturday, Sunday or a holiday, we were there for 24 hours in the office. And so I was a junior in high school. I started, I started, you know, February of my junior year in high school uh, as a dispatcher. We had a, a rollaway bed that, you know, we pulled out of the bathroom and opened up in the, in the office space and flopped out on that. We were allowed to bed down at nine o'clock at night. Uh, the evening part, you know, five o'clock to eight o'clock, uh, you know, we had some chores to do, empty the trash around the office, things like that maybe type up some forms or, you know, something, some little administrative type of thing. Um, but basically answer the phone, um, take the information. We had a dispatch system that was all manual. It wasn't computerized back then. And we dispatched resources to calls and processed it and all of that. And uh, I did that for uh, until I moved out on the floor as a firefighter. I worked in that position. and. You know, again, I, a, a, a tremendous amount of responsibility for a 16-year-old uh, and, you know, sleep deprivation issues. I know that's something you talk about. We can talk about bad. that at some point. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's when it started, right? You know, I mean, in addition to the Explorer Scout stuff, you know, but, but here I was, you know, at the time the department had seven stations and, you know, we probably had – we probably ran 3,000 calls a year back then, something like that, but not uncommon to get two or three emergency calls during the night, uh, you know, where you wake up from a dead sleep to answer the phone, ask questions, take the information, process it, dispatch it, all that type of thing, stay awake while the crews are out until they get back and then go back to sleep and then get up at, you know, 7 o'clock, 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning and get ready and go to school. How did the seven station department not have full time adult dispatchers? Uh, it, it just, uh, you know, just a situation, I think, in the early 80s that they could get away with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the exact term. And then we're still obviously fighting that to this day. <laughs> with, yeah. I just, I'm, I'm constantly blown away how, you know, there's volunteer part departments in affluent suburban areas, you know, in, in the Northeast. Like I right. absolutely get it when, you know, when you're in the middle of nowhere and, and you'll get a handful of, you know, calls, like you said, a month, a year, whatever it is. And yeah, it's all hands then. But 
yeah, when when you've got that many people that you're protecting that are all taxpayers, then it is just, you know, getting away with it until we finally kind of step up and go, enough is enough. Right. It, it, I mean, I, I could still remember my first, my first solo night, my first night, you know, in, in February of 81 that I worked, uh, you know, kind of a routine medical aid call and stuff. And, and then sometime in the early morning hours, a significant structure fire. And, you know, I was awake pretty much all night, had a couple other calls through that process. And, and I remember getting off in the morning thinking, I'm going to school now. I can't. Do, how's this going to work? Right. Uh, but it it worked out. I, I'm very happy that I did it, um, you know, that I had the opportunity because it set, you know, it just continued the path to where I where I went. That must have been brutal, though, because I, I went to university here in America um, and I had to do it the moment I got off shift. So, you know, as an older student as well, sitting in the back of a the back of uf and you know the classrooms after god what was it basically almost a hundred mile drive from work to then listen to (laughs) to dry dry um you know presentations in the university and then try and you know not be so cross-eyed that i could complete the coursework and so i don't know how you did it at that age that's uh that's mind-blowing you know most of these teenagers can't function with with eight hours sleep because they're growing so much right well then you know it's that was that was junior year when I was still, I'll say, you know, pretty much taking a full load in high school, right? I had six classes, but I had focused educationally, you know, from freshman year, I didn't take any electives, you know, no shop, no, none of that kind of stuff. I was hardcore, you know, courses. And so by the time I finished my junior year, I had met all of the graduation requirements except for, you know, there was like one class they required me to take for a semester in my senior year. And then I just needed to pick up some units. And, and part of that, I was able to get work experience uh, credit, you know, for the job. Um, And so in my senior year, I was able to taper back, right? I I had, I had four classes and three of them were in my first semester and three of them were electives, auto shop, architectural drafting. And I was a teacher's aide, right? So the only class I had was this government class that I took the first semester and, but it allowed me to, to shift my schedule. So I didn't go to school. I think I started, my first class was like close to 10 in the morning. Uh, So I actually had, you know, I could get off work. I could go have breakfast. I could do things. And and then I went to school and then I got out in the early afternoon. So it was, my senior year was pretty easy. Now, did you transition to another department as a dispatcher? Um, so many years later, uh, I worked a side job, uh, as I got hired as a dispatcher with the sheriff's office in a regional communication center type of atmosphere. And I, I was still working as a dispatcher for the fire department. I applied for that job as a full-time job. You know, I was going to go do that because money, you know, was going to pay better. And, uh, when I went there, they were looking, they were hiring a full-time position, but they also had just gotten approved for a part-time half-time position. And so they asked me about that. And I said, well, I'm not interested in that unless we can figure out how to do it around my fire department work schedule. And I keep both positions. And so that's what I did. And so I, 
I worked there for, I actually worked there for two years part-time. The reason I ask, um, I think the dispatchers are the kind of unsung heroes of the first responders. Um, and obviously there's, there's, there's tension between us sometimes, you know, we're all tired and overworked and underpaid as are they. Um, but I don't think we really realize the conditions that they work in. Firstly, you know, if it's a 12 hour shift, they may arrive in darkness and leave in darkness. You know, they're in a dark room themselves, staring at screens all day. Um, but the other thing is, and I've had dispatchers on here, um, you know, some of my friends and another one was uh, Beth Bowersox, who was the dispatcher for the Paradise Fire. And she lived in Paradise. So she heard her own community burning to the ground. And uh, she had the people calling, you know, begging for help. And then the line would go dead. And what I realized is that for us, we get banged out on a structure fire. Then we pull hose and we throw ladders and we crawl and, you know, carry equipment. We go to a vehicle, um, you know, a, a wreck. And now we're carrying extrication equipment, but there's this physical offload with that stress, just as, you know, adrenaline was made for fight the bear run, et cetera. But our dispatchers get exposed to this stress and just sit there. So there's no offload. Did you have any kind of perspective on that side of it, comparing the fire service that you were also in? Well, I can, I can, I won't talk about myself personally, um, in, in this regard, but when I got hired at the sheriff's office, uh, the same day I got hired, uh, this uh, other dispatcher got hired. Um, she would eventually become my wife. And, um, you know, she worked there. Uh, she worked in that profession for many years. And she she left that she left that job uh, in 2001. Uh, I think it was about August because it was right before 9-11. Uh, basically stress induced, you know, uh, we had some, you know, there was some significant events that occurred, uh, in the home front, right. Behaviors that like indicated stress issues, et cetera. And, and a lot of it was those unpacked uh, issues, right. The, you know, taking the phone call for whatever traumatic event, um, and no closure, you know, uh, it wasn't until recently, right, that we we even thought to include the dispatchers in our peer counseling or our, you know, post-incident debrief or, you know, that type of thing. Uh, they were sort of a, a neglected aspect of, of the situation. And so, so I saw it with her and I'll, you know, we've been married for quite a few years and, you know, some of the stuff we just haven't shared with each other, right? Myself. Her, her as well. And uh, I don't know, maybe a year ago, there's a documentary movie out, uh, PTSD 911. Um, and we went to a viewing of that here uh, locally. Um, and they had, they had the guy from Anaheim was there, and, you know, a couple other folks that were in the, in the video. And uh, I convinced her to go with me and she wasn't, you know, she wasn't sure. And even even when we sat down in there to, to watch the video, she said to me, I may get up and leave, you know, um, and and after after watching the video, we came home and and that was probably the first time in many, many years that we sat on the couch with each other and shared a few things. Right. Sort of talked about some of those things that were still lingering or that we never you know, event that we dealt with that we never told the other about or, you know, that type of thing. 
Beautiful. Yeah, Matty Firenze was the Anaheim guy, um, friend of mine. But uh, I forget the name of the guy who made the film because he Con- did Conrad reach out. Weaver. Yes, he reached out a long time ago. Um, but uh, and then we, I, I hadn't heard from him since. But yeah, it seems like that has become a great film. And I'll, if I speak to Matty, I'll let them know because that's the whole point of those kind of projects is, you know, funny some people kind of focus on fundraising when it comes to mental health and i think they're missing the point you know of course if you're funding you know getting first responders to resources of course there's a, there's a financial element but for most of us it's it's the conversation it's opening that door it's smashing the the facade of the weakness and all the things that you know a lot of us were raised with that that two-dimensional you know masculinity that's you know i think really you should that's that's what toxic masculinity should really be. The the facade that a lot of us were were raised on that we're this kind of RoboCop type individual rather than you know this yin and yang, this kind, compassionate person who went into a profession where at times we do have to be tough, but then we have to give ourselves that same compassion after some of these calls. Yeah, and and, and I you know probably will come up. It might come up later, but but before we lose it because you mentioned the the dispatcher in paradise and the local you know that kind of thing and and i experienced that myself the you know uh, there were incidents that occurred when i was a teenager you know working in the dispatch center car crash you know whatever the crews would come back and i'd gather up some information and pretty soon it's like oh i i know that kid that you know just got killed in that accident right um and uh, you know, so there was so some of that when I when I went out on the road as a firefighter, you know, it, it was that everybody talks about, you know, kind of the hometown boy makes good. Right. Got a job, got a job in the hometown, you know, et cetera. Not so much because because it didn't take long for me to realize as I started running calls, because I worked even though we had seven stations. I worked most of my career at the headquarters station, which was the neighborhood I grew up in. And so, you know, going on calls, all of a sudden it's, it's either the parents of my friends from school. Uh, it's my, my parents, friends, in some cases, some relatives, you know, I, we had this feature, uh, was sort of unique, but, but probably a little bit disturbing when, you know, when I was a dispatcher, it was before this 911 system even existed, right? It didn't come into play till about the mid 80s for us. Um, but we had a switch in the dispatch office and, and we could turn that switch on and turn the overhead speakers on in the station. And the crews in the station could actually listen to the phone call that I was taking, right? So they could hear the address, the nature of the call, if it was in their district they could start moving long before I finished asking all the questions. Well, with that, you know, I, my parents lived in town. Uh, My father had a number of medical emergencies uh, that occurred. And I can remember being in the station on times, you know, when I was working as a firefighter and you hear the speakers come on and all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I recognize that voice. That's my mom, you know? Uh, And, and I was, off on a, a medical thing in the 90s, uh, 96, when my father passed away. Uh, but the crew that I would have been working with that day ran that cardiac arrest. Uh, so, you know, it's it, those those things is a is definitely a, you know, a trauma that needs to be addressed when you have a local person. You know, I had a young firefighter that came on to the department who 
I grew up with his brother. Uh, but when he came on, he was in that situation I was in, right? The family still in town, lots of friends. And, and when he came to my crew the first day, that was one of the things I talked to him about was you need to be prepared for this. And you need to be understanding this. And, hey, we've got things in place now that can help you uh, navigate that. It seems like that's most prominent with the volunteer fire departments because a lot of them are working in their towns. So not only are they running on their, their neighbors and their friends, but also they live and work in the same place. So they're reminded. I mean, if I go to Orlando, man, there's bodies everywhere in my mind, you know, the, all the street corners and dumpsters and you name it. But, um, you know, when I come back home here in Ocala, I've never worked here. I mean, I take that back. I, I was a medic student here, so <laughs> a bit of a bit of a reaper, a bit of a black cloud. So there are some even locally here from my time there, but it's not the same as working, you know, year in, year out in the same place that you live. And, you know, just dreading that that whatever colored car wasn't your teenage daughter or son that just wrapped themselves around a, you know, a telegraph pole. So it is something that I think we need to acknowledge, especially in the volunteer fire service where they don't get as much support and conversations like this. Right. You know, it's definitely, you know, wasn't something I was, uh, um, thinking about, um, you know, at the time. So you end up becoming, you know, full-time firefighter. Um, ultimately, you climb through the ranks to BC um, in that department, if I'm understanding that right. What, as you progress through your career, what were some of the career calls that you that you had where wearing that uniform? Um, yeah, so I, I, you know, on the floor, firefighter, uh, you know, I would say, you know, a number of, of uh, large fires I went to were, were basically normal, right? Um, but I did have a fire in, you know, it was in our first in district. Uh, and and I, I use a slide, a picture I have of, of that building uh, when I talk to people about being prepared for the unexpected, you, you know, Fires had become so routine that, you know, say, hey, we're going to go there, we're going to pull hose, we're going to put the fire out, et cetera, right? And in no way did I expect to pull up in front of this place that night and see a woman hanging out the window on an upper story. And it's like, oh, you know. And so that was the first time I, you know, ever, you, know, you hear people talk about, you know, going on the scene and going directly into the rescue mode. And, Everything else, you know, doesn't doesn't matter. It it unfortunately the station I worked at, we had my my engine company and a medic ambulance, you know, firefighter paramedic ambulance. So when we pulled up, you know, it was the firefighter medics on the ambulance were able to, you know, quickly come up, grab a ladder, go get the ladder up, you know, and we had a successful rescue and and that type of thing. But it was one of those, you know, career moments, right? Not not everybody ever in their life as a firefighter gets to say they had a dramatic grab. Right. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I can remember looking at this woman, you know, as I'm running around out there, I was a captain at the time, right. I'm trying to put together the plan and, uh, you know, she had superheated smoke rolling over the top of her head. She was leaning against her thighs, you know, hanging out the window, 
and 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 I have to think, you know, she was wondering probably at what point do I go? And you know, we got the ladder up there, successfully brought her down the ladder. So, you know, that that was definitely a career mark, I would say. Beautiful. Now, what about the concept of leadership? I know we're going to talk about that, you know, with with the company you work with now. But when you look at the the rungs of the firefighters ladder career wise most of the progressions involve testing and within that testing there isn't necessarily actual leadership knowledge gained so what have been your observations as you've climbed all these ranks of the uh the officer classes versus actual leadership um knowledge and wisdom being imparted um Well, I, I'll talk about the, the, the testing process, right? Uh, and for me, I believe the most critical position in the fire service is company officer in the fire station. Um, they have the, the fire chief, you know, has very little influence over what goes on day in and day out in those fire stations, right? Um, uh, it's the fire captains. It's the it's the officers in there that that are the ones that are dealing with the things that are going to alter the culture, cause headaches for the administration, whatever it is, right? So one of the things I talk to people about is, and I say this, you know, everybody when we get into those testing processes, what do they focus on? They focus on this silly tactical exercise that's going to be given to them, um, you know, simulation, et cetera. They think, oh, I, I need to spend all this time practicing for that. I need to spend time sitting in the front seat of the fire engine and understanding this whole call management, you know, et cetera. And no, don't get me wrong. Those things are important, right? We have to, we have to make sure that that skill set is there. But I tell people that are preparing for promotional exams at that level, I said, look around your community. There's not a fire burning in your community at this point, basically. They've all gone out. We, we've, we've put them out. We have training and tactics and strategies, et cetera, to deal with that. But you know where the fires are burning in your community? They're burning in your firehouse. They're burning in your crews. And we're not preparing those company officers to address those things. To, to put those fires out, to deal with those things that need to be dealt with before they become a raging wildfire in the organization. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things that, that we need to you know, do a better job of. Now, what about tools? I mean, obviously, we've got All-American Leadership. We've got Echelon Front. There's some great organizations, excuse me, organizations out there that are offering this kind of training, but they're not really deeply embedded in the fire service nationally, at least. So what are you seeing as far as, um, you know, the, give me some examples of, of good fire departments that you've witnessed. And then conversely, you know, what, what would be the opposite of that? Well, I, I think the good organizations are ones where the senior leadership is engaged, um, has their hands on the wheel, and, and is really, you know, steering the bus and, and making sure that we've got the right people on the bus, um, that type of thing. Um, maybe a little bit of a controversial statement here that I'll make. Um, you know, one of the things 
and, and I'm sort of, I'll say semi-guilty because I work for an organization now and I, I bring my fire service bias, I'll say, to things to some extent. Um, but one of the things that for me, uh, I made the decision not to go to the National Fire Academy. Um, I chose to go get my master's degree at a university instead. And, uh, and the reason I did that was at the time I had reached this, this conclusion or this perspective that there was a lot of inbreeding taking place. And, um, and so that was, that was like this moment for me where I like, okay, I need to go out and, and get a different exposure. And, and I think, I think we need to encourage that. Um, and, and, the, and what sparked it for me was I was, uh, I was taking a battalion chief's promotional exam. And one of the exercises was I had to write a paper on implementation of a new training program or something like that. And I, and I wrote this paper and then I watched the process where it got evaluated and who sits on the panel for a promotional exam for battalion chief, a bunch of fire chiefs. And I remember as they reviewed my paper, sitting there thinking, okay, well, they, they'll understand the content, but where'd they get their education to be able to actually really evaluate my writing ability and my skills in that regard, you know, that type of thing. And, and that was sort of that moment where it's like, oh, I, I think there's something here that I need to go out and explore deeper in a different arena. Um, so, but back to your question, I think the organizations where I've seen, you know, success is, is really where, where the, the senior leadership is, is modeling behaviors that are appropriate, that are driving the organization. The, the rest of the organization is sort of seeing that, following that, um, and guiding that. Um, and I'm a big proponent of the sort of leadership aspect. Um, you know, I, I worked in, uh, that first organization I worked in, I'll say, was very toxic. Uh, the leader, the senior leadership, he was the fire chief for 30-something years. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, a bully, uh, you know, autocratic dictatorship, you know, type of stuff. Um, I do. <laughs> Just never, so you know. <laughs> never, 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 you know, there was no inspiration. There, there was no inspiration to aspire to that level, right? I can remember that saying, that's what it's about. Why would I do that, right? And, and you know, that was just his style. Now, having said that, he was also a person, and I was a beneficiary of it. He was also a person that, you know, if you came forward and brought your issue to him, uh, he'd give you the shirt off his back to, help you get things squared away or, you know, take care of yourself or, you know, whatever. Um, but you might have to pay the price at some point, you know, type of thing. It's interesting what you were saying about that kind of inbreeding when it came to, you know, I won't even pick on that one organization, just the fire service in general. And this is one of the things that was my aha moment for the podcast and people say, Oh, you got a very diverse guest list. I'm like, yes, <laughs> because I see these people as people, not, you know, you need to be wearing a fire uniform to come on the podcast. You know, humans are humans and leaders are leaders and athletes are athletes. And they're all, you know, 
walks of life. So I wanted to find the experts in the world, some of which are firefighters, you know, and, and, you know, they're experts in their own life story too. So that's, that in itself is, is valuable. But if I'm going to talk about leadership, then I also want to talk to Jocko Willink and Rick Rochelle and, you know, all these other great leaders I've had on the show. If I want to talk about firefighter fitness, then I want to talk to also, you know, Jim Wendler and Crick, uh, Chris Henshaw and all these other incredible coaches that are out there. And when you look at the American Fire Service, of which within, as you said, there are some phenomenal departments, some phenomenal leaders, but nationally, there's overall, there's an opposition to any sort of fitness standard. We haven't adjusted the work week since we were literally pulling steamers from horses. So, you know, we, we, there's a lot of chess beating admins and unions about how great we are. But if you were from another profession and you came with a fresh set of eyes and even economically, the bleeding of money because of the way we work our people, you would be like, all right, we need to start from scratch. What the hell are you people doing? But like you said, there is that inbreeding element where if, if we actually admit that we aren't doing as well as we are, then we need to put work in and we need to have some humility. So this is what I think is refreshing when I talk to either people like yourself or Roger Shai that are both first responders and in these other organizations or simply people in the military and, and um, industries outside the first responder professions is they can look objectively and go, here's where you're failing. Here's where you're getting it wrong. And we need to hear that. Because you don't grow if you think that you're doing everything right. You don't grow as a nation if you keep saying America's the greatest country on earth. Because it's not. And it's not a competition either. You know what I mean? There are countries that are doing certain things so much better than us. And we are doing certain things so much better than anyone else. So the answer is having humility, finding the real experts of the world, and knowledge sharing so that we can all, you know, as they say, the rising tide lifts all ships. That's what we need to do. But if we, if we allow ego and arrogance to get in the way of change, we'll continue burying first responders. We'll continue having a hiring crisis. And you know, ultimately, you know, we won't have an American fire service anymore. Yeah, you know, and I've heard some of your, your previous podcasts and, and uh, we can talk about sleep deprivation, some of that kind of stuff. Because... Um, because I thought it was bad when I was on the on the floor. It was even worse, I think, when I was a fire chief. Um, but the you know my generation in the fire service um, is responsible for some of the dynamics of today. And 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 I was I was the president of the labor group at one point in my career, right? And and I was involved in the negotiations of some of this stuff. But when I first started, we didn't have overtime. Overtime didn't occur. It was unheard of. And, and the reason was we had extra staff. You know, in my department, we had three bodies per shift that were there to cover for the days that people took off on vacation or called in sick or, you know, whatever. So it was sort of unheard of um, to get an overtime, you know, if, if I had two, maybe three overtime shifts in, in an entire year in the first probably decade of my career, I was doing great. It, uh, but at the same time, that caused me to have a second job, you know, because couldn't survive on, you know, what I was making as a firefighter. But um, but what happened is we we became greedy. 
at some point. Um, and I can remember, I can remember a person in my department coming to me one day and said, Hey, we should get rid of one of those people on each ship. And, and I said, yeah, but the problem is if we do that, because we had three and we allowed three people off on vacation at the time, right? It made sense. And, and I said, if we do that, then that means I guarantee you, that means on Christmas day, there's going to be three people on vacation. And there's only two people on that shift. Somebody's going to have to work Christmas day that was planning to be off that day. And through, you know, other issues with budget cutting, et cetera, you know, we, we eventually negotiated those extra bodies away and started working overtime and, and then, and then, and it wasn't bad at the beginning because everybody, you know, it was sort of new and novel. Everybody was volunteering to work, but then as more demand and more demand, and eventually then you got to like, okay, now we're into all this mandatory overtime and that type of thing. So, you know, when I, when I talk to firefighters now that are, you know, coming on the job or to talk about it or, or even in some of my leadership stuff, you know, it'll come up, right. And I'll raise my hand and say, okay, let me, let me jump on the sword here and say, Hey, I have some responsibility for what you're dealing with today because I was part of the generation that negotiated away those extra staff and, and things that would have curbed some of that. It's, it's such a nuanced conversation and it's not complicated because I hate that people use that term to then, you know, get out of putting any work to fix it. Oh, it's complicated. However, um, I think what's made it such a hard thing to get everyone in the room talking about the same thing is because we're all guilty. And I've talked about this recently. You know, I spent my whole career saying, yeah, I work one day on two days off. It was only recently that I had the epiphany that we make, we work three days on one day off. You know, three eight-hour days crammed together. That second, that that third day bleeds into day two, so it's only day three that you actually get off. So it's not ten days a month; it's thirty days a month. So that's me. You know, that's my fault. Um, you know, and then the last place I worked, um, they. I've got a friend of mine who's a phenomenal human being. He's from another country. He's uh, a reservist here in the U.S. as well. Just a great human being. And he, he gets asked, hey, you know, when are you going to do more military service so I can get your overtime? You know what I mean? That, that's, that's culturally. So that's how that one department, which, you know, is my least favorite that I've ever worked in, <laughs> obviously. Um, you know, that's the mentality there. It's all about the money. So they don't want to hear about, you know, 2472, they don't want to hear about fitness standards. They just want to figure out how they can get more money. Um, and so culturally, that needs to be completely rebooted. But then you go up to, you know, obviously admin, and now you're asking a leader to be a leader and actually have the courage to address their city, their council. And then you have the cities and council who we work under who have no idea what we do. And so shame on them for not learning what it actually is like being a firefighter, a police officer, a dispatcher in their own city. So it's all the way through. So, you know, with you, you know, telling us about your impact there, the more of us have put our hands up and go, yeah, I'm, I'm part of the solution. I mean, I'm part of the problem, too. That's when we can finally have this this complete conversation, put all the pieces in line. And then, you know, the from us all the way through the city council, we're like, oh, so it's more expensive the way we're working now because, you know, we've got medical retirements and overtime and we keep losing people that we train and put through medic school and they walk out the back door, you know, and then now everyone's on the same page and the firefighters, you know, understand that, yes, the overtime's going to go away, but 
over time, you know, working somewhere else is okay because you understand sleep now. I'll go hang drywall for eight hours, but I'll go home to my children and I'll sleep in my own bed. But it's until we all kind of, you know, link arms and acknowledge our part of the problem and then demand the solution, that's when we're going to move forward. And that's where I challenge the leaders of the American Fire Service, whether you're, you know, a brand new probie or whether you're the fire chief, we need to have this conversation to move it forward. And I think, you know, your experience with all American leadership, you know, it was definitely a piece of that puzzle as we refined, you know, what true courageous leadership actually is. Yeah, I, I, you know, again, part of the problem, not maybe part of the solution, right? You know, I, I was, you know, most, a lot of agencies in California work the 4896 now. Um, and it's insane. And, and I could, I could tell you that, that I was, I was, you know, one of the champions for that in my organization when we, when we went to it, you know, and, and I could make all the arguments as to why it was beneficial. Um, and, uh, uh, as, as that particular organization has probably tripled the call volume and uh, doubled the call volume since, since we went to that work schedule, um, I can only imagine the impact that's having. Yeah. What is again, is education, the, the, the genesis, the nucleus of this podcast really came from Dr. Kurt Parsley, me listening to him on Barbell Shrug talking about him discovering the sleep deprivation impact on the SEALs. He was a SEAL, went to med school, came back as a SEALs physician, took him about a year to figure out what was going on, and then was able to change you know, some of the night training, um, used a supplement to get him off Ambien, like they were all on Ambien, um, their blood work was in the toilet, and then turned it around. So again, it's educating people on sleep deprivation because sleep deprivation is a huge amplifier for mental ill health addiction suicide anxiety depression sleep deprivation is a huge amplifier for cancer and strokes and heart disease and weight gain and you know vulnerability to for example covid-19 like it's everything but until you have that knowledge you're just going to push kind of blindly against it because you don't understand what it is. Once you're educated on just how detrimental shift work is, that it is actually a known carcinogen, then you're going to focus on advocating for your work week and your health and your time with your family rather than chasing overtime because you've kind of been melded into that being the the holy grail, you know, the dollar bill. Yeah, and I think that's you know what we got to when I was, you know, before I became a fire chief, um, what we got to was, uh, you know, it was cyclical, right? It was this, it was a vicious cycle of just what you said, you, you know, I need, I need time with my family over my four day break. And the only way I can prevent getting mandatory to work overtime one of those days is if I take a day off the day before, because then I'm on leave and I'm not eligible for mandatory. Right. So I'm trying to achieve my family time. And in order to do that, I'm taking a day off. That's likely going to force somebody else to have to work, you know, against their choice, maybe uh, to cover that day, you know, so it, it, it is a vicious cycle. 
Absolutely. Well, I know you ended up becoming a city manager as well. So, I mean, you've literally been in all all the seats now. So were there any kind of aha moments or realizations when you shifted from chief to that role? Um, well, even, you know, even when I went to the fire chief's position, right? I mean, just the I had a fire chief once that, you know, was introducing promotions for something. And, you know, he made the comment that, you know, there's no instructions on the back of the badge to tell you how to do the job. Right. Um, and, and in many cases, you, you, you just you're just unprepared for the job when you get that new badge and you and you sit in that seat. Um, and I think that was sort of the same thing, you know, when I became the fire chief. Right. Uh, I thought I kind of had a pretty good handle on things and, you know, but. But, you know, you get into that next role and all of a sudden stuff starts dumping in your lap and you go, oh, where did that come from? I would, you know. um, and so I think when I moved to the city manager's office, it, it just was a, you know, at a higher level of that. Right. Um, because because I was no longer just dealing with the fire department and and the, the role of the fire department within the municipality. And, you know, I obviously had some interaction, but, you know, I was now you know, dealing with the finance department and HR and, you know, all these things at a, at a much higher level. Um, and there's always going to, what I've found is there's always going to be this surprise thing that occurs sometime in the early part of your tenure in a new role that you're just not expecting it. it and you have to, figure out how to navigate that. Right. And so, so I talk about, I talk about this, um, uh, I talk about my circle and, and, you know, my circle, I explain when I was that young teenage kid and, and uh, the early firefighter, my circle was huge, right. The people that I interacted with and talked with, you know, that I could, you know, get support from, et cetera. it was huge. But then I found as I started to move up into various leadership roles, leadership of the union, right? Even there, it's like, okay, I, I needed to tighten that circle because I couldn't, I couldn't deal with all of everybody, right? And when I became a captain and, you know, battalion chief, well, when you become the fire chief, your circle is pretty small because there's pretty much nobody in the organization you can talk to, you know, and have, have, you know, you can talk to them, but nobody within the organization that you can go to for good counsel on like how to deal with things. Right. So you got to have those relationships outside of of you, your department to to help you. And so so I and the same thing when I was a city manager. And, and I think what I encourage people is developing that circle because you need to be able to pick up the phone and call a friend and say, hey, I just got dealt this card. I've never dealt with something like this. Help me, help me walk through this, right? Give me some good guidance and things like that. And so, so I exercised that when I became the fire chief and I'll, I'll just tell a quick story. You know, my third week on the job, I get a phone call at two in the morning on a Saturday night, Sunday morning from the on-duty chief officer to inform me we had some nuisance fires the last couple of weekends. And he says, Hey, we, we, we had those couple of fires tonight. Uh, the police department made an arrest. You know, they, they caught the guy. Guess what? It's one of the volunteer firefighters in the organization. All right, I'm on my way. 
you know, um, how do I navigate this? Right. Fortunately, I had a fire chief that I worked for who had had a pretty significant experience with that type of situation. And, you know, that was my first phone call in the morning. Hey, how do I navigate this? You know, that type of thing. So when I became, when I went into the city manager's office, it was the same thing. You know, I, I, I wasn't there very long and got this thing dropped in my lap and like, Oh, and it, and it was one of those hot potatoes. And so how am I going to navigate this? Well, it's, it's, you go to that circle of, that you've developed and, and you get some good counsel and some guidance on how to, how to move through things. Beautiful. I see you're wearing the behind the shield shirt, by the way. I had to, I had to, <laughs> I had to, I had to do it for you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. They're, I, I love them. Absolutely love them. They're so comfortable. But uh, yeah, that self-care and sabotage that really resonates with me at the moment. I just had like yeah. two and a half weeks of no booze and then had a drink the last couple of days. So living it currently. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so going back to um, your journey, before we progress into how you how you found All-American Leadership, you talk about, you know, some issues with vision and, and some of the struggles that you had. So kind of walk me through, you know, where where your struggles were, where the lowest place was that you found yourself progressing through your career. Um, well, you know, trauma was a big thing, you know, kind of or, or, as I alluded to earlier. Right. Uh, probably stuff I didn't recognize at the time and and certainly stuff that has come forward since then. You know, even that teenage exposure stuff. Uh, that I that I experienced, um, but I had a couple of incidents early on in my career. Um, I had a next door neighbor who was a captain in the department that I had worked for for a while. You know, we were uh, when I say next door neighbor, he lived you know half a block down in the condo complex, and and uh, you know one night I went and or he, I was over there in the afternoon and he called me up that evening. Hey, I'm not feeling good. Went over, talked to him, called the medics and talked to them. It, you know, oh, hypochondriac, you know, whatever, indigestion, ate something bad. Uh, but, you know, why don't you give him a ride to the hospital and he can get checked out? You know, so load him up, take him to the emergency room. We're not in the emergency room five minutes. He goes into cardiac arrest. Um, you know, fortunately, it didn't happen when we were in the car on the highway, you know, type of thing. Um, and and so that was a pretty dramatic event. Um, but what was the challenge was the, the way the in my opinion, um, the way that the leadership of the organization dealt with it uh, and dealt with me and, and didn't, you know, I didn't get the, I didn't get the, the support. I felt that probably I should have. I had a lot of, uh, I had some survivor's guilt because uh, that individual had worked a trade for me the day before um, and been on fire and, you know, that type of thing. So, yeah, and he survived, you know, that's, he was resuscitated. He survived. He would, he would go on to be the best man at my wedding, um, you know, but, but, uh, you know, just the, that aspect, um, and a couple of years later I had a pediatric drown, pediatric drowning. Um, and at the time my daughter was pretty much the same age. Right. So as you've heard, as I've heard other people talk about, right. You know, you look down, you don't see, you don't see that kid, you see your kid. And, uh, you know, and so went through that and she did not, she did not survive. And, but it was a, it was a very dramatic event in the community. Um, you know, uh, the, the, co you know, could have, we were probably the pretty much the farthest from the hospital that you could have been type of a situation. Right. So the, the transport through town with a police escort and, 
you know, all that type of stuff. I mean, it was a, a pretty dramatic. Um, and I remember coming back to the firehouse, walking in and a senior officer, you know, was sitting there in front of a group of people like, you know, you guys, you guys need to talk to somebody. You need, you know, you need some, some help or, you know, that kind of thing. And, and we all spun around and walked out. Right. Um, and, and that night at the dinner table, we sat in silence and eating dinner. And finally, one of the guys on the crew spoke up and said, Hey, something's wrong. And, and so we actually, I remembered an article that had been in the paper about some guy in a neighboring community that was a psychologist or psychiatrist or whatever that was doing some of this post-traumatic stress stuff or whatever. I went and dug through the recycling bin, found the article. We made a phone call or two, um, and we ended up having a, a pretty significant debriefing a couple of days later. But again, it was that organizational failure, right? It wasn't the organization didn't make that happen. The guys that were impacted had to make that happen. Um, and so, you know, so that that was kind of my introduction to trauma and, and some of that type of stuff. I, I had known a little bit about Jeffrey Mitchell's work earlier, you know, but never really paid much attention to it. Uh, we had a we had a counselor in our organization. It was a captain in our department. He, he dabbled a little bit here and there trying to to make some things happen. But but eventually we led to um you know a major breakthrough with, with having an organizational structure with the peer support and all that kind of stuff that that occurred sort of as a result of that um you know had some other you know pretty significant dramatic events where again <clears throat> the organization just didn't didn't support back us up the community didn't back back it um and it really it really led me to be a rebel. Um, you know, uh, that, that last one was, was related to trauma, you know, physical trauma of a vehicle accident that, that it basically ended up driving our trauma system creation in the county. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I, I was working overtime as the dispatcher that night. I wasn't even in the field. But I was the one that was making phone calls and trying to solve these problems and, you know, made a phone call to a hospital and said, hey, we got this going on. And somebody said, hey, don't bring them here. I said, well, they're too late. They're already there. They're pulling in your door, you know. And uh, I mean, it was there was a big expose in the newspapers and, you know, it was, but but we were hung out to dry. Right. Um, and no, no support, you know, that type of thing. And, and so I became a rebel, and, you know, just sort of. Did what I wanted to do and and, and work through that, um, but but it was you know those types of traumas that that I think impacted me that also made me an advocate to get better systems in place in the or, other organizations I worked in and and things like that. Um, yeah, the eyesight thing. <coughs> excuse me. Um, you know I. I had this like floater in my eye one day and uh, no big deal. I didn't think. And I went and they said, Hey, you got some abnormal blood vessels growing on your retina. And so they did laser surgery back in the late eighties, um, cauterized around in my eyes and that kind of thing. And, all right. All good. Then in the early nineties, uh, I had a blood vessel rupture in my right eye and it went totally dark. And, uh, I was off the job for three months pondering 
what am I going to do with my life? You know, at the time I had probably three-year-old twins at home, you know, what's this going to be like? You know, that type of thing. Um, had a surgical procedure. They cleaned all that out, restored the vision. I went back to work. Everything was great. Uh, 96, when I talked about my father passing, um, uh, I had had a retinal detachment uh, in that eye. And we would go for probably a year or so, uh, significant surgeries to try to restore that, um, that vision. I was in medic school at the time because I decided to, the department was sort of supporting me to go to medic school. And uh, I thought, well, I better finish medic school because I'm probably going to be working like in an ER or something, you know, and, and I need that skill set. But I kind of fought and proved to the department that, well, I don't have to drive a vehicle that requires anything special. California, you know, you can drive a vehicle with one eye, uh, et cetera. And so I fought and they let me stay on. And I worked the rest of my career with a fake eye, basically, um, and vision in one eye. And so, you know, there was that traumatic part of, you know, I thought my career was over. Uh, but then I pushed through and said, I can prove that I can do this job. And I learned how to start IVs with one eye, I, you know, all that stuff. Uh, and I was very successful. Going back to firstly the the injury and also you know the, some of the calls, the number of people that I know that even if they felt like they were in a good department, after you get hurt, um, you know you find yourself on your own and the phone's not ringing anymore, and that organizational that that separation from tribe in itself can be crushing to people, and I think there's almost a parallel. And I haven't experienced this because I never rose through the ranks, but I would imagine, you know, you're on a crew, you're a captain or a lieutenant, um, and then one day you're a BC, and now you're in the office on the other side. And there's got to also be an element of that where you don't feel like you have that same tribe anymore. There's there's, there's definitely the them and us, you know, that takes place. Uh, it, you know, I was fortunate as a battalion chief that, you know, I still lived in the fire station and, you know, ate with the crew and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but, but it's, you know, you're, you are different, but I, I tell people who have, who are promoting to that position, uh, just what you described. And I said, here's the, here's the deal with, you know, becoming a battalion chief. Now you're the captain on a fire engine. You got three or four people on the engine with you. You go on a dramatic event, whether it's, you know, the best fire that you went to and you're all high five and afterwards or whatever, you know. That traumatic call. Um, the good news is you all get to get back on the fire engine and talk about it and start that process, right? When you're the battalion chief, you get in the car by yourself and you drive away and you talk to yourself. And and so it, it is very different. And then with the organizational betrayal in, in some of the cases that you had further back in your career. I think that's another under-acknowledged part of the mental health conversation. And I know, you know, so many great firefighters, some that work in this last department I worked, that their biggest trauma is simply the work environment they work for. Like for me, 
um, I've talked about this a few times. The last place I worked, I got hired with a guy who ended up um, succumbing to an overdose, accidental overdose. And this particular crew, when we went to the department, to the, to the funeral and I volunteered, were the rest of the people that were still there were more concerned that they had to run extra calls while we were gone at this funeral than the fact that they lost a, a brother in, in uniform. And that was by far one of my biggest traumas of all the shit I've seen, of all the stuff that happened to me when I was young. Being part of, supposedly part of a tribe, you know, joining a community that's supposed to be selfless and service-oriented, and you realize that selfishness, that cancer is in there, that was absolutely jarring to me. So whether it's someone who's, you know, I've had people on here that got hurt at work and their department, you know, terminated them after a year or whatever it was when when that tribe that you've taken a vow to be a part of turns their back on you whatever that looks like that is absolutely again crushing to some people and i think sadly to some of them it was the final straw that you know made them complete suicide or you know take that extra medication by accident then and now they're no longer with us yeah, it, it's, you know, there's a lot out there now about, you know, organizational betrayal and moral trauma and, and things like that. And it, I think it's, it's pretty significant. Um, and it, and it, uh, when you, when you get to the fire chief's level, you know, um, people don't understand it happens at that level too. Uh, you know, because because you're you're doing what you believe are the right things for the right reasons, and you know, protecting the community and your organization and that type of thing, and, and the politics of what's important above you uh, is different, and, and so you end up, you know, sometimes stepping on the wrong toes in the community or something like that, and. And you find out quickly uh, how much backing you have. Now, you mentioned about you know the, this compounding trauma from some of the stuff that you saw as a young man through to you know later in your career. Where was the the darkest place that you found yourself, and then what were some of the tools that allowed you to to, to start growing from that trauma? Um. So. I resorted to coping mechanisms of alcohol, you know, um, and, uh, you know, I joke with people, you know, after a couple of those incidents that my, my fix was, um, a six pack in a, in a dark room, listening to country music, um, which we all know isn't, isn't the good fix. Right. Um, but even, you know, even, uh, uh I was a battalion chief at the time. And, you know, some of these, like I said, you know, I had that, that, uh, vehicle accident, you know, thing that, that, that led to sort of my rebel behavior in how I managed incidents after that, um, use of helicopters was sort of restricted and, and I refused to accept that. And I called for a helicopter anytime I could and, and, and then did everything I needed to do to justify it. And, so I would end up in front of, you know, some people, bureaucrats, whatever, you know, questioning me or and things. And, and I remember telling one of them, hey, I'm done talking about this stuff. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to do what's best for the people. If 
but I am, this conversation is over. The next conversation we have about this will be at my dining room table with a bottle of whiskey, you know, um, because you're, you're bringing up things that I need to suppress. And, uh, um, you know, so I, I think, you know, there was that period of time where, where I resorted to, to the numbing effect, um, of the alcohol for, for things like that. Um, and I, you know, figured out how to curb that, you know, um, we were fortunate in, in that organization, you know, where I spent my lifetime, basically. Um, there was a police officer who went on to get his PhD in psychology um, and is the clinical director now for the West Coast Post Trauma Retreat Center um, and was a founder of the First Responder Support Network. You know, he was a resource, right? He, we started we started getting regular um, uh, training from him, you know, that type of thing and, and started to learn how to deal with that. Um, and so he became a resource and somebody that, that I called. And, you know, I talked about that circle um, when I was the fire chief and, and I had some things that came up, not necessarily for me, but, you know, people that I had in my organization that needed to get something that was the phone call, right? You know, I was, I was able to call him. So, so I think through, through some of those changes we made in the organization, I was able to get, you know, get what, um, what I needed then. Uh, but I don't believe that I truly um, started to break out of the burden of all of that until I retired. What changed then? Um, well, just a, I was separated from the job, um, but I, I, uh, I discovered, um, I discovered through my time with All American Leadership, um, the art of storytelling, and um, the first time that I was able to present my journey. Um, sort of from start to finish type of thing or whatever. Yes, it was, you know, focused on the concept of leadership, but, but I talked about a lot of this stuff that shaped me and developed my compassion and empathy and things like that, that um, changed who I was as a leader later. And, and so it, it was through that process of, you know, starting to share my story and things like that. I then hooked up with a group called the power of our story. And um, we meet once a week and have a tribe and have an opportunity to unload and talk and share stories and things like that. And I think I think that's probably where I've made most of my traumatic growth is through that storytelling process. How did you come across some All-American leadership in the first place? Um. I was introduced, so there was a retired Navy SEAL guy, and, you know, so I was the chief in Coronado, so, you know, obviously the SEALs are pretty prominent there, um, and so, but there was a retired uh, Navy commander for, uh, or commandant, or whatever they called him for the SEALs, um, and uh, he was in a local leadership group that I was involved with, a kind of a community thing, and he said, hey, you ought to 
check this stuff out. And so as it turned out, he was, he was an affiliate of Rob's at all American leadership and doing some teaching with them or whatever. And so he turned me on to the group. I went to a workshop. I got invited to sit at an executive leadership table discussion uh, that Rob held. Um, and that would have been in like maybe early 2020, I think, or late 2019. Um, and I was impressed by what they did. And so I hired them as a consultant to come into the organization that I was working at and do some work with us. And so I was a client and, and so I, we worked and it was, it was, it was very important at the time because it's what got us through COVID. Um, you know, they were providing this online stuff once a month on leadership at all levels of the organization. Uh, I implemented as, you know, some training, people were engaged in it. You know, that type of stuff. It, it it really gave us some stuff to focus on as we as we worked our way through the COVID era. Um, and then when I retired, um, and I I will be honest, I retired sort of unexpectedly and unplanned. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, I remember calling Rob up and saying, "Hey, you know, just want to give you a heads up. I got like a couple weeks left. I'm done. And you know, it's in the budget for next year. I, I just don't know." you know, how, what the dynamic will be as I leave. And, and partway through that conversation, he said, hey, I need you to stop for a second. I need to ask you a question. And he said, will you come to work for me? And so that was sort of, I said, well, I got some things to do and, you know, let me, you know, circle back with you. And so, you know, after I finished my cross country bicycle ride, I got back and said, Hey, okay, I'm game. Talk to me, you know, that type of thing. So been with them since then. I want to get to the, the bike ride and hear about that in a second, but just before we do, you had all these different roles, you know, arguably leadership positions. What was it that you found all American leadership that maybe was missing up to that point? I think that the basic fundamentals that they focus on uh, within their curriculum, um, you know, the, the development of trust, alignment with values, um, performance, you know, things that, that come, um, and accountability. And so we, we, we talk about accountability, right. And what is accountability and, and they somewhere in the, in that process, they shifted, they shifted my thought process to change the word accountability to ownership and create ownership. And somebody in that group, um, uh, is made this comment about think about ownership. Do you ever wash the rental car? Probably not because you don't own it. Good point. You don't Great care point. about it. And, and so, you know, I, I started talking when I was still working as the fire chief, I started, I was like, okay, we need to create an environment where, where there's ownership, where people are willing to wash the car. You know, they're going to take care of the organization in such a way that they'd be willing to wash the car. And, um, you know, I, just so much of that stuff really kind of resonated with me. Right. And, and then and then to circle back, you know, so I talked about my you know getting a master's degree and, and I talked about my I discovered servant leadership in a book in the early 90s. 
it resonated with me. I tried to like figure out, well, how do you, how do you implement servant leadership at the time um, when you're working in a toxic organization that's, you know, this dictatorish type, you know, thing? Um, how do you, how do you implement servant leadership? So you're bouncing against the wall there. Um, when I got my degree, my master's, it's in organizational leadership based on servant leadership. And, and so I think a lot of what um, all American leadership presents and supports and drives is that same type of thing. So I think there was just a synergy there. Did you, was the toxic environment the one that you had most of your career in or was it a different one? No, so no. I, I had Jocko on the show and we were talking about, you know, the last place that I worked. And of course, you know, I've, I've read his books and understand, you know, what extreme ownership is and walk the walk and, you know, positively bring solutions or brought solutions to that department and did trainings and all kinds of things. But I asked him, what do you do if it's not changing? If that culture is so toxic, you know, and my solution ultimately was, it was so detrimental that I, you know, through the universe, throwing some things at me, transitioned out that department to fix it from the outside because from the inside wasn't going to happen. And just a cliff notes on the background, Operations chief at the time had, was a dispatcher, never been a firefighter. The chief chief was a fire prevention guy, never been a firefighter. And then the other ranks in, at the chief level were all EMS, never been firefighters. And they're, you know, again, with the egos, didn't want to hear from any of us lowly firefighters what the issues actually were. And so, you know, you can do all the ownership in the world, but there's a certain point where you've also got to go and even... I've heard Jocko and Leif talk about this. They had an officer where they basically had to, you know, turn rank on him. So usually, you know, hopefully you can you can affect change, but I would argue that sometimes the, the actual change is that you need to remove yourself from that. How were you able to navigate that situation that you were in? Uh, um, so in, the, in are you asking like when I was in that toxic organization? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Was um, there was there a way of changing it? Because like you said, one of the things Jocko says, you just got to play the long game and wait. Well, this last place, they were grooming the next person to be the same exact individual. So there was no long game. I, I played the long game. Um, you know, I had been the, I, like I mentioned earlier, I was the labor president, you know, for four years, went toe to toe with that individual, you know, that type of thing. And, and don't get me wrong. He brought a lot of great things to us, right? We got into hazmat, we got into USAR. I mean, we, we did some, some great things. It just leadership style was, you know, an issue and created toxicity in the organization. And, and there was this really them and us relationship and, you know, that type of thing. Um, but, but unfortunately there was an event that occurred that we just couldn't, we couldn't live with anymore. Um, and uh, the organization, I was not, I was not a union leader at the time. Um, but I was, I was a level headed guy, I would say. Um, and so there was, you know, like, we're, we're going to have this big, this is it. And I spent that weekend, you know, meeting and talking with people. And we got to a point where we all agreed that we would tone it down a bit, but we would, we would write a letter and we would deliver the letter in a significant way to city hall, um, to the city manager's office. Um, and, and that was basically, we had a, 
it was it was related to our USAR program and stuff. And so all the guys that were involved in the USAR group gathered uh, with their gear and we marched to City Hall and myself and another person went into the city manager's office and said, hey, city manager here. And so he came out and handed him the letter and he read the letter and said, hey, you need to take this letter back and and you know let me work on this i said i don't uh, i don't have the authority to do that but maybe if you come out here you can tell these other people that and so he walked out and saw the the troops out in the lobby and realized what the significant was and you know and so sometime shortly thereafter there was a exit strategy you know that they came together and then the organization started to change we got you know we had a a couple of temporary chiefs and we got a new fire chief that came in that that was was the epitome of a servant leader and it was that individual uh, by then i was a battalion chief when he came <clears throat> but it was that individual that um really you know gave that opportunity for that servant stuff to really launch and he's the one that came to me one day and said i think you have the skills to be a fire chief you're not going to be the fire chief here because i'm not leaving uh, but I'll help you. I'll help you get there. And, and, you know, and that was that wow moment for me, you know, cause this, here's a guy that's, you know, you know, going to give me the push to get to what I want to do. Beautiful. Yeah. But it still includes a, a coup, which is what I know Jocko <laughs> did with one of their leaders, you know, so yes. sometimes the ownership means getting your pitchforks and your torches and, <laughs> you yes. know, forcing change that way as well. So, yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, you talked about cycling across the U.S. Before we wrap up, tell me about that. Yeah. So, um, so I, to to touch on like getting to the whole cycling thing, um, you know, two thousand. I, I grew up in the area in Northern California where mountain biking was basically invented. Um, so, as a kid, you know, I learned how to take my Stingray and make it into a dirt bike and you know, ride on trails and things like that. So I got into mountain biking a bit, but, you know, life came and kids and work, et cetera, the bike went away. And I found myself in, in about 2015 thinking I need to get some exercise. I need to do some things. I was sitting behind a desk as a fire chief. Right. Um, and, uh, I was weighing mountain biking and I thought, you know, I know how I was, uh, I'm going to throw myself down some trail, smack a tree and, you know, all that. I think I'll take my chances with cars. And so I got into road biking um, and I started road biking. In 2019, I was diagnosed with job related cancer and, uh, you know, went through treatment, went through a diet change, you know, went to a plant based diet. Uh, Etc. But really up the game on the exercise, and then I came across an organization called Fire Velo, which is a cycling group for firefighters, um, and their whole their whole focus is on um, raising money for and awareness about cancer in the fire service and mental wellness, and so it really kind of fit right into what I was passionate about and things like that. So in the my focus during my cancer treatment in 2020 during COVID, um, which was always interesting, uh, was uh, positive attitude, healthy diet, good exercise, 
good medical support and a support network, and I was going to get through this thing. And so the Fire Velo Group does a bicycle ride from San Francisco to L.A. every summer. And I signed up for it. And I, you know, I was like, OK, I'm going to do this bike ride. And it's going to be the, you know, I was doing uh, some chemo hormone treatment. Um, and then I was going to start radiation treatment at the end of August. And so it's like, all right, this one week before my treatment, I'm going to do this 500 mile bike ride down the coast. Um, and so that was the game plan. Um, then kind of COVID cropped up hotel issues again, you know, that type of stuff. And so they canceled the event. I was pretty devastated because, because it was, a there was a big piece of my, my mental picture on, on beating cancer, et cetera. Um, and a buddy of mine that I worked with in Northern California had signed up to do the ride as well. He called me up and he said, Hey, I've talked to my wife. Um, I'm going to do the ride anyway. You know, we can, I'm going to book the hotel. She's going to be my SAG. You know, if maybe you could come up the coast for the last day and, you know, ride with me on the last day or something like that. I said, okay. And by the next morning I called him up and said, I'll meet you in San Francisco. Uh, and so the two of us rode down the coast with our wives as our support team. Um, and we did it, you know, one week trip, you know, that kind of thing. So, so that was my, my adventure and my connection to fire Velo. And then they came forward in, you know, and they were planning at this point, uh, for a ride in 2021 to commemorate the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And that ride was going to leave from Santa Monica and ride across the country, stop at all of the memorials and uh, land in New York uh, just prior to 9-11. And um, so I went to my boss at the time in January, so January or so um, of 2021. And I asked him, I said, hey, uh, how long is too long for a guy in my position to be off work? <laughs> And, uh, you know, because this was going to be six or seven weeks. It, it, uh, and he said, eh, about a month. And I said, okay. So I worked it out with the group. I was going to meet them in um, Indianapolis. And I was going to ride the last 10 days of the route with them. My buddy that did the coastal ride with me was also going to go with me. And we were going to both meet up in Indianapolis and, and do the last 10 days with the group. Well, then lo and behold, in June, I, you know, made that rash decision that I was done. And uh, um, as soon as I, you know, probably one of the second or third phone calls that I made uh, after I made that decision was to call the Firebello guys and say, hey, uh, my schedule freed up. Um, can I do the whole ride? And so they said, sure. And so I did. So we left, uh, we left the Santa Monica Pier on uh, August 1st. We rode through the desert, um, through Arizona, New Mexico, northern Texas, into Oklahoma. Uh, we stopped at the Oklahoma City Bombing Museum. Uh, and then we pretty much left there and took a little diagonal all the way up to Pennsylvania, went to the Flight 93 Memorial, uh, dropped down to the Pentagon, and then, and then went to New York. Um, it was a 40-day scheduled trip, and we were... 34 days on the bicycle. Uh, we averaged somewhere over 90 miles a day. We had one stretch where it was, I think, eight days straight without a day off. Um, and when I say day off, 
those days off weren't really days off because you were busy maintaining your bike and going to stores to get supplies, et cetera, you know, that type of thing. Um, but some, some great adventure, you know, I tell people, uh, you see a lot of the countryside when you're traveling at 15 miles an hour. Uh, we spent most of a good part of our time, uh, riding on the, you know, the actual pavement of old route 66, uh, through some towns that have been wiped out, you know, once they built the new highway and that type of thing. Um, it was a great opportunity, you know, being separated from work, uh, you know, having just retired, you know, so I, I spent the, the month of July busy scrambling, working out the logistics and getting all my stuff and, you know, figuring out how I was going to be gone from home for seven weeks and, you know, all those things that, that go into play. So I, I, it really, I wasn't able to really, I didn't dwell on the fact that my career had just ended. Um, and then going across the country, uh, you know, a lot of time on the bicycle, a lot of time just to think, a lot of time to process, um, and and that type of thing. And and then, you know, got to see some great things. Got to see some, you know. And you think about what was going on in 2021, right? Um, in the summer and, and such. Uh, you know, I still got I got to see a lot of Americana. Um, you know, people coming out to celebrate us and support us and you know even in communities that weren't well off you know um people buying us you know we go to we go to a restaurant you know and there's 15 or 20 of us in there eating and of course we had shirts on that advertised what we were doing or you know whatever and by the time by the time we finished our meal you know we'd get a note that oh some guy at some table that left 20 minutes ago paid your bill you know that type of thing and so it, it really restored you know some of that positive american stuff that was so fractured at that time um so I, I think that was i think that was a great adventure not without you know personal emotional and physical challenge and all that type of thing um i think one of the best days was uh the pentagon was still closed in september of 21 when we went there um and you know but we we felt you know we needed to go there um you know we knew the the memorial was closed but we figured well we can get close enough to get a picture by the sign or you know whatever and we were there and so we we cruised in there and we're kind of milling around trying to take some pictures well when when there's 12 guys in tights and you know funny looking clothes and bicycles milling around at the Pentagon, eventually you attract some attention. And uh, so a squad car pulls up and this sergeant gets out and he comes over and talks to us and and we tell him kind of what we're doing. And he's like, what? And he walked right over to the barrier, he says, grab your bikes, move the barriers to come with me. And he walked us in and, and gave us a private walkthrough and tour and explain the whole memorial and you know all that kind of stuff so that was that was a pretty cool event you know and he basically said yeah if my boss found out that 12 guys rode their bicycle across the country here landed here and you know i didn't do this for them you know probably wouldn't sit well so that was our, our thing there i've had quite a few people on the show that have done the kinds of trips that, that you did, you know, uh, some memorial ride, walk, ruck, etc. 
And over and over and over again are these stories of kindness and compassion, you know, offering up places to stay, meals, you know, equipment. And I think this is this is the real America. This is the real UK, Australia, whatever you know, country you want to insert there. This is how humans really are, you know. And and sadly, our screens are adorned with the bad people, whether they're you know they found themselves in the world of crime or they're you know, heads of pharmaceutical and cigarette companies, whatever it is, you know, that's what we see, the kind of misery and the division. But there's no better way of reminding yourself how good people really are is to kind of walk outside your own front door and immerse yourself in your community and find find the helpers. Isn't that what Mr. Rogers, you know, is like, you know, look for the helpers. And that's exactly it. But the helpers are everywhere. The helpers are inside a lot of us. But we're distracted by work and bills and the news. But that's uh, over and over and over again. I hear this inherent goodness of most communities, and it's so beautiful to hear every time someone story tells about that element of their journey. Yeah, it, it like I said, it was. I, I want to say it was a once in a lifetime thing, but but I think you know there's some chatter of, of maybe doing a 25th anniversary ride. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. But uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was just. The other piece of it was, you know, just the completion, right? The the um, the journey, the feat, you know, the the challenge. Uh, probably the I tell people that probably the the hardest day, the hardest day for me was the day we went to the Flight 93 Memorial, um, because it was about it was about an hour ride from where we were staying. So we got up in the morning and rode there. It was rain, you know. It was wet and you know you're riding your bike in the rain and wet and we get there and, and there was a, a national park ranger um that was there waiting for us he, he he'd been in connection with the group for months you know that that we were coming when we were going to be there he wanted to make sure he was there he was i think one of the original people from when the site opened and you know and there's a whole story behind uh their their kind of motto logo uh, that's associated with a, I think it was an LA County firefighter. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he really wanted to be there and talk to us and give us the tour and, and that kind of thing. And so it was, we were there for about an hour, um, but we were wet. And by the time, by the time we finished, you know, besides the emotional aspect of going through the museum and all that type of thing, um, the, the cold, wet, you know, was impacting. And I remember walking out, getting you know ready to go. And I looked over at the, you know, bicycles all lined up there. And I looked over the other side of the parking lot where our support vehicles were in the RV and the trailer that were, you know, there. And I thought, man, I could just go put my bike in that trailer and hop in the RV and be comfortable and warm for the day. Cause we had 90 miles to go. And, uh, and, and so I said, well, I can't do that. And so I ended up getting on my bicycle and I went over to the other side of the parking lot and looped around in circles, et cetera. Well, some of the guys were going over to get some dry shirts or, you know, something. And it's like, can't get anywhere near that van. Can't get anywhere near that trailer because I'll pack it in. You know, I just need to stay over here. And then and then we eventually got got it all together and, and took off from there. But that was that, you know, that ability to overcome that that challenge, that that throwing in the towel kind of a thing. Amazing. 
Well, one one last question before we, we wrap up. You mentioned, you know, obviously overcoming cancer. What was the cancer that you had? So I was, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Um, and it was, you know, it was a fluke that I discovered it. Right? I, I, I went to the doctor for other reasons. And uh, um, he was going to do some blood work. And, hey, we'll do a PSA test. And, okay. And so, you know, the, the number came back a little bit. A little bit elevated not you know dramatically elevated and of course you know dr google you know you start looking at dr google what does that mean and uh um and in and in looking at dr google i discovered that that uh, some of the issues that might indicate or cause an elevation of the psa is heavy workout cycling you know some other things so i immediately uh, tell the doctor it's all good. You know, I just, I did a hundred mile bike ride, you know, a couple of days ago. And, um, you know, you didn't tell me not to work out before I worked out that morning and, you know, I went, it's, so this, this has got to be nothing. And, uh, he said, okay, well, we're going to repeat the test in a month and you're not going to do any of that stuff and, and we'll see what it is. And, uh, so the number had gone down, but it was still up you know, not dramatically. He said, well, we need to send you the, you know, urology for eval and, and that type of thing. And so I went and, you know, everything was unremarkable. Nobody was really finding much, but they said, we well, probably, you know, so they, they requested an, they were going to do an MRI. Um, that was the next investigative thing. And the insurance company denied the MRI. And they said that, under their protocol, whatever it is, that that before you can have an MRI, you have to have a biopsy. And I thought, well, wait a minute, I have to have this invasive procedure um, before I can have an, you know a fancy X-ray. Um, but so that was what I did. Um, had the biopsy, and of course, it came back with with a small you know location at the time of the cancer and. Uh, so then it was then it was off to the races. It's like okay, and so the the doctor at the time, and I had again done a lot of research, and the doctor there was this thing called active monitoring, and so the doctor talked about active monitoring. She thought that was a, a reasonable approach, um, and she said, you know, come back in six months and we'll do an MRI and we'll do another biopsy maybe and sort of see where it's at. I said okay. And I, the next morning, I, I had thought to myself, I said, you know, don't you need an MRI today to compare it to in six months? And so I said, ah, so I, I went for a second opinion and went to, went to the doc, you know, different doctor who was a surgeon, you know, and he basically, you know, he was a hotshot at University of California, San Diego. And um, I had researched him a bit. And so, and he was like, Oh no, we're going to go in and get that thing and remove it and get it out of you and all that kind of stuff. And of course, my only question to him was, okay, well, how soon can I get back on my bicycle? Um, you know, and so, so that was the, that was the approach. The next thing I did was I filed my workers comp case. And, uh, when I met with my attorney, um, he had had the same kind of cancer and he had had radiation treatment instead of surgery. And his partner had also had it, 
that he had had surgery. So he had seen sort of both things. And so he encouraged me to at least explore things. And so I did. And I went to the radiation oncologist and I tell people, I think he did a better sales job. Um, you know, he presented me with graphs and charts and data and, you know, all this kind of stuff and, and gave me the idea that he was pretty confident that he could take care of business with the radiation treatment, et cetera. So that was the route I took and I did some hormone treatment and I did some, I did external radiation and I had seed implanting um, as well. And uh, that seemed to, that seemed to take care of the, the cancer. Um, you know, all the, all the numbers are good now. And, you know, I still got, I guess, I think I have two years left until they, you know, quote unquote, say you're, you're at that five year mark and you're clean. Um, but I'm pretty confident in stuff and, and things that I did at the time, because I've heard some of your, uh, your other people talk about, uh, I was listening this morning to the one you just posted, um, about inflammation and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and that's, where I went with my diet, right, and still am, you know, where I eliminated that inflammatory diet stuff and, and really focused on the, the health and physical fitness and well-being and all those elements that, that I stuck with. And so I think I'm, I'm in a good spot. Uh, the, only, the only battle I have now is here we are in 2024. And I still haven't managed to get the – cities to uh, sign off that this was a work comp thing and they could actually give me a sub. And so we're still, we're still making, still having that fight. And, you know, and that's been, a, I mean, they, they, they tried to, the, the independent qualified medical examiner when they deposed him, they said, Hey, because you know, in addition to the, the uh, cancer, which is presumptive in California. And I also had some hypertension that caused some cardiac stuff. So that again is a presumptive issue. And so uh, when the when the city attorneys deposed the medical examiner guy, they said, well, you know, that that uh, thickening of his ventricle wall, his heart, it's not related to the hypertension. Good God, he's an athlete. He rode his bicycle across the country. He's got an athlete's heart. That's what caused the thickening of his heart. It's not the it's not the hypertension. Oh, and by the way, all the all the side effects from his cancer are because he sits on bicycle seat all day. Got nothing to do with the radiation treatment that you did, or you know the the damage from the cancer or whatever. So that's the that's the fight I'm dealing with right now. It's so maddening because you hear this over and over again, even in you know states with pre presumption laws. You know these these poor men and women are fighting, which is adding more stress and therefore breaking down their immune system and making them more likely to get ill. And I've literally had people say that they've been in the room where they've heard members of these kind of, you know, legal teams say, we'll just fight them until they die. They're going to die first, you know, which is so disgusting. And again, goes back to the leadership. If we're hearing this over and over and over again, clearly it's a truth. I mean, every every department has stories of, of you know, a firefighter who absolutely has work-related issues. And ironically, you know, in, in the, the military you know, it's it's not that hard to prove that, you know, what you've got going on is related to your service. You know, even, I don't know if it's still the case, but up until recently, if it's changed, you could self-diagnose with PTSD, for example. You know, now you have our first responders who 
24 hours at a time are being exposed to horrendous shit. We know that sleep deprivation is a carcinogen, breaks down, you know, mental health. And yet these men and women are having to jump through hoops to prove, oh, which fire was it? Well, the last place I worked hardly ever saw fire, but they ran all day and all night. So they had sleep deprivation. So they can't point to a fire, but their work is still contributing to the numerous cancer deaths that departments had. So, you know, again, this is where leadership comes in from the probie through to the chief and, you know, beyond is that we, we need to refocus what's most important. You know, and overtime is irrelevant if you don't make it to retirement. You know, the only thing that we can really advocate the true currency is our health and our longevity and our time with our family. So, you know, thank you for sharing that because this is just another layer into this conversation that I hope will finally gain a critical mass and really, you know, get us away from the conversation always being on decom when it comes to cancer and widen our perspective the same way as, you know, what you saw on a job isn't your entire mental health conversation. So um, that, that appalls me that you are going through that with such a story career yourself. Yeah. And, and you're right. I mean, I, I've had that conversation with my attorney. I, I know, you know I've said, oh, I know what the tactic is because, because guess where I used to sit, <laughs> you know, um, and, and so I know what the tactic is, delay, 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 right? Eventually, eventually they'll either give up or, or they'll succumb to something and, and, the, and the payment won't be there anymore, you know, or that kind of thing. And so I, I know that, and that's not going to happen for me. I'm not giving up and I don't plan to die soon. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and also what's, you know, refreshing is, through, I'm sure, your own self-discovery and hopefully with some, um, you know, help from the medical professionals too, you were thinking about diet, you were thinking about exercise. A lot of people that get this diagnosis, they're told about radiation, they're told about chemo, but they're not told about all the lifestyle changes because, you know, what was it that contributed to the development of cancer and how many of those can you change that will improve the chance of a reversal and, you know, at least stop the growth? Right. And, and that's, you know, I, I, when I talk now to fire service professionals, I have the opportunity often to talk to recruit academy classes and things like that. Right. And, and I, and I, I talk to them about, this is the greatest profession ever. Right. You know, all the, all that stuff, but then I shift and I say, Hey, but I need you to understand some of the realities. Um, you know, when I first started in the fire department, we took our turnouts home and washed them in the washing machine at home with, you know, that we next washed the family clothes in. Right. You know, and, and we did stuff, you know, that was stupid um, that exposed us and in, in those types of things. So, you know, long before I became diagnosed with cancer, I was a proponent for changing practices and, you know, exhaust systems and fire stations and you know, all those types of things that that reduce the risk. And. You know, you're never going to, we're never going to eliminate it. You know, there's always going to be some level of risk, but, but, you know, I was a proponent for making those changes and implementing things. And, you know, some of the simple stuff, you know, every, when I was working on the fire engine, where was every day we went on five or six medical calls, right? Where was the medical equipment? It was right above the exhaust pipe. My whole career it was, you know, the one compartment you're in and out of every day, is right above the exhaust pipe, right? We're exposing ourselves all day long. And so, 
you know, making some of those types of changes and, and trying to address those issues. And, and I talk about the traumatic stuff, right? You know, the, the post-traumatic or the trauma stress and, you know, dealing with that. Um, but, but again, I was passionate about those things before my diagnosis, but that's where I focus a lot of my talk now with people, you know, they're entering the profession. Hey, learn from what we did, you know, pay attention to the changes that are being recommended and, and that type of thing. It, it's, you know, it's important and it will, it will help you probably end your career, uh, maybe a little less scathed than some of us. Beautiful. Well, Jim, I want to thank you. We've been talking for two hours now. We've gone all over the place from dispatch to leadership to cancer and mental health, but it's been an incredible conversation. So firstly, if people out there want to reach out to you or learn about the organizations that you're a part of now, where are the best places online to find you? Um, so I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, that's probably, you know, that's, that's the, I'll say the professional site, you know, um, I, I do a little bit on Instagram and Facebook, you know, just I'll say family stuff, you know, that type of thing. But, but LinkedIn's probably the spot. Um, you know, I do work with all American leadership, uh, which is all American leadership.com. And, you know, one of our biggest projects is the, the fire, Le fire service leadership Academy. Uh, we actually launch a new Academy next week with 36 participants. So I'm pretty excited about that coming up. Uh, I also uh, I work with um, first responder coaching, um, where I provide coaching services for first responders. Uh, so you can find me on that website as well. But uh, if you want to make direct contact with me, you know, LinkedIn would be the spot. Beautiful. Well, again, I want to thank you so much, not only for leading us through some of the you know, the, the more educational and uh, um, organizational elements but also for the courageous vulnerability when you're talking about you know the the trauma and the drinking and the cancer because that is what we really need to hear and we talked earlier about toxic masculinity being the two-dimensional you know facade of a man the more leaders that i have on the show that are courageously vulnerable the more we dispel that myth as well so i want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today and coming on the behind the shield podcast I, I, Dave, thanks for having me. And, and like I said, the, you know, part of the healing process for me, that the discovery is, is telling the story, right? Sharing the story um, and, and that type of thing is very helpful. And in preparing, you know, preparing for the presentation or, you know, the discussion, of, you know, going through thinking about all that stuff. And, it, you know, it's, I don't fear it anymore, right? You know, it's, now, that's not to say I don't have some demons that crop up every once in a while and mess up my night's sleep or something like that um, or or take me down a path that I don't want to go down. But but the, the ability to kind of go back and remember some things and, oh, yeah, that was not great, but this was the growth that came from it. And I think that's the key.